return. We're also being reminded that his return is imminent. It could happen today. It could happen during our lifetime. We are to be ready. And in Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus is talking about the last days. And I find it very significant in light of what we just heard that Jesus tells us what we ought to be doing in the last days, telling us what we ought to do when, he's return, when his return is coming soon, and we know it. And so we read these verses in Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. These are things that we were able to do while we were in San Diego. And as Polly was saying, these are things that we can do without going too far away as well. We don't have to go to Costa Rica. We can go to Costa Mesa. And um, so I looked, and there is the same organization that is in San Diego that we served with, Feed America, they're also up here in Orange County. But we also serve with a local organization called Families Forward. And they're actually doing a food drive this weekend. And so if you go shopping today at some of our local grocery stores in here in Irvine, uh, you'll be given an opportunity to buy a little extra food and give it to them that they can help feed the hungry through the For Families Forward group. But also um, Second Harvest Food Bank which is the larger organization here in Orange County as part of Feed America. And so we're looking into that because that's where you can find um, ways to separate the good onions from the bad onions. And so we're going to be looking into that, and that's um, for our whole families as well. So be paying attention to that in the coming weeks. Um, so let's continue then in First Thessalonians. And we read these words in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. They will not escape. They will not escape. If you got the blog this week, you noticed that the topic of the blog was, it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious about the coming of the Lord. And I think all of us have had different situations where somebody has said to us, are you serious? You know, it's almost like in disbelief. Is this really going to happen? And I'm sure a lot of us have heard our parents say, or as parents, we have said, I'm serious. You better do it. I'm serious. It's going to happen. And certainly we've had professors and teachers who have said the same thing to us. I am serious. You had better be ready because there's going to be surprise quizzes at times. We don't want to be surprised in a bad way. God is telling us that if we are serious about his coming, we'll be ready. 
And if we're serious, we won't be surprised. We won't be like that person who gets caught with a thief coming into their home stealing things, but rather we'll be ready. Thief in the night is a theme that we see throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. And day of the Lord is the words, words that we see throughout the Bible that talk about God's coming day of judgment. And so God's coming day of judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. And we're going to understand this better as we even look into Jesus' words about what he talks about there. I don't know if many of you have really thought about the coming of the Lord or if you've seen different things or maybe some of you have read the series Left Behind which has a very strong uh, resemblance to, to things that I heard when I was younger as a Christian uh, many years ago. And there was a movie uh, many years ago when I was a little boy. Uh, it was called Thief in the Night. And it was a movie about Jesus' return. And it was a movie that was, usually, that was meant to scare people into wanting to turn to Jesus. Because the movie about what happens is that people suddenly disappear from the earth. And if you saw the really bad movie Left Behind, um, then you saw that, that that was the theme of it. It was like, you know, suddenly you're in an airplane and half the people disappear, you know, or, or you're in a bus and the bus driver disappears. Um, but is that what's going to happen? I mean, it brings out just a lot of questions. There can be a lot of sensationalism about it. We've heard in the past few years of groups that call themselves Christians say, we know the date that the Lord's going to come back. And so they give that date, right? And the Lord doesn't come back. And so they say, oh, um, we, we read it wrong. He's going to come back another date, okay? And that date comes and goes. And Christians look like fools in that time. Or Christians are given a foolish demeanor at that time if they're claimed to be done by Christian groups. It's like the boy who cried wolf. You know, we just keep doing it and it never happens. But that isn't what Scripture teaches us. And neither does Scripture teach us that we ought to be necessarily running around the world, at least this is my view, running around the world trying to scare people into heaven. It's like Chicken Little, right? The sky is falling, the sky is falling, you know? But it's not that. I think there is a very reasoned approach to Scripture that helps us to understand in all seriousness about what is happening and what is going to happen as Jesus is coming back. And so today I'm going to share with you what I believe these passage, this passage teaches us. But I also encourage you to study the scriptures for yourself so that you will know what you believe. And as we've been saying through this series, there's a lot of Bible verses that we're going to look at quickly today. And they're all printed in your bulletin. And you can study them later on your own, and you should, because you should make up your own mind about these things. But there are some things here that no matter what view you have about when Jesus is coming back, there are some things that we can agree on totally that everybody can buy into. And the first one is this. If you're taking notes in your outlines, the first one is this, is that in regards to Jesus' return, God is in complete control. God is in complete control and we are not. God is in complete control, and we cannot know the dates of his coming. Even Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and I'll be referencing Matthew chapter 24 and 25 in today's message, just as we read from Matthew chapter 25 earlier about Jesus telling us that he's going to separate Christians from non-Christians, for the sheep from the goats. But here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, no one knows 
about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, of, nor the Son but only the Father. Only God the Father knows. But he does know. And he is in control. And so as we read these first three verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we learn three things about God's absolute control over this day. And the first one is that the day of the Lord means that the Lord is coming in judgment. The Lord is coming in judgment. This is his control. He gets to do this. He's going to make sure all things are made right. And in the Old Testament, in the 8th century B.C., the prophet Amos said this, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. And so the day of the Lord is a day of darkness. Isaiah, the prophet, 700 years before Jesus, said this, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. And so we see again, the day of the Lord is a day of reckoning. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is a day of wrath. And we'll understand that better a little later in this message. And then in 2 Peter in the New Testament, the Bible says the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. And so God will rescue those who turn to him, but to those who reject him, there will be a day of judgment. So we see that God's complete control means that the Lord is in complete the Lord continues to do things correctly, even to the point of judgment over evil. Secondly, the Lord will come unexpectedly. The Lord will come unexpectedly. That's in his control. In Matthew chapter 24 again, Jesus said, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So once again, we read about the thief in the night, and this time from Jesus. And he's warning us that we must be ready. We don't want to be caught off guard. But he's going to come, and he's going to come unexpectedly. The world is going to have a false sense of security, but he almost certainly is going to come, no matter what the world may say, no matter how people may feel. Thirdly, the Lord talks about his coming as like a woman who is in labor pains. She's a pregnant woman, and she's going to have her baby. It's absolutely going to happen. It is unavoidable. The Lord's coming is unavoidable. It is sudden, and there's no way to escape it. It's going to happen. And so we see this, that right away, God wants us to understand. I think this gives us a real sense of not only that God's in control, but it can also give us a real sense of comfort. Because we know that with God in control, he will do all things right. And as we look at the teaching of the second coming, this is so important for us to, to believe and to understand that God is in control of things. He's going to do things in the right way. 
Now, all because God is in complete control doesn't mean there aren't things that we must do. There are things that we must do. And so Paul goes on in verses 4 through 8, and he tells us what we must do as believers, what we can do as Christians. If you have your outline or if you have your Bible, you can read it with me, and we're going to read it out loud. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. Let's read it together. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So God tells us that as Christians, we should live with self-control. Now, God's in absolute control over the events, but we as believers are to have self-control as it says here in verse 8, so that we can live as God's light, as he tells us that we are in verse 5. And so while we are waiting for the Lord to come, we don't need to be in fear of his coming, we don't need to be afraid of his coming, but we should be living in harmony with the truth of his coming. And so God uses his word, and Paul uses these words to help us to see that the day of the Lord can help us to remember that we are children of the day. We are children of the light. And this is our identity. We are sons and daughters of the light. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says to those of us who are believers, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And this is how God would have us to live. This is how God would have us to be while we are waiting for his coming. And also to be in the world, that we would be his light. So like going to San Diego or going to Costa Rica or going to different places where you work and where you live to share God's love. This is God's light in you. And God says that I want you then to also know this, that as light, there is clothes that I want you to wear. And he, the clothes that he talks about here is actually armor. And the armor that he says that we ought to wear are we ought to wear helmets and we ought to wear a breastplate. And so these are two pieces of armor that are meant to defend a person, to, to keep them from harm. Now, the breastplate and the, the helmet represent three things in our lives, three places where we can live out our faith in Christ. They are faith, love, and hope. Now, maybe you remember in the book of Ephesians, Paul also talks about the, the, the armor that a Christian is to wear. And he talks about the breastplate in Ephesians chapter 6 as the breastplate of righteousness. And he talks about the helmet there in Ephesians 6 as the helmet of salvation. So Paul loves metaphors. He loves using things like what a, an, a soldier would wear to help us to understand what a Christian ought to wear. But here in Thessalonians, he uses the breastplate and the helmet to represent the, what is called the triad of graces, the three graces that you and I can live by. And the first one is faith. 
And so we can live with self-control by putting on faith. And how does faith come to us? It comes to us by reading, hearing, and obeying the Bible. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Bible says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And so you hearing today, just as Dwayne said, you're not here by accident. You made a choice. You made a good choice. You came by faith. And you're hearing the word of God. And now it's up to us as we hear the word of God to apply the word of God in our lives. Secondly, he says you are to put on love. How do we put on love? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Bible says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men and women of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. So how do we love? How do we put on love? We put on love by loving. It says to do everything in love. Everything. That means everything. All that we can do. Everything, every opportunity we have. The way we treat our our brothers and sisters. The way we act here at church. God wants us to be loving. Is it easy? No. Do we fail? Yes. I fail all too often. I fail to love. I fail to show my faith. I sin. And in all of this, it helps me to do two things. It helps me to confess my sin and know my weakness and turn back to God, remembering that he has called me to repentance. He's called me to be a person that is honest with my failings, but at the same time seeks to overcome them with his grace. And the second thing that it does is it makes me long for that day when I won't deal this anymore, when I won't mess up so many times. And that's only going to be when I'm with Jesus. And so by knowing my sinfulness helps me to long for the Lord's coming. By being honest with my weakness helps me to long for being with him. So that though I may fail at my faith, though I will try to grow in faith, and though I may fail at my loving, though I will try to be my loving, there's one thing else that Paul really wants me to have here, and that helps me so much in the struggle of living out a life of self-control, and that is that I hope. I hope with all of my heart that the things that I'm struggling with now, yes, they will get better in this world. And I truly believe that as we obey God's word and we work with him, that though life on earth is hard, whatever you're going through, it can and it will get better in the Lord. You don't have to wait till you die for that to happen. It can and it will get better in the Lord while we live. But our ultimate hope, Our greatest hope is what's going to happen after we die. And therefore, we must trust God. We must trust God. And that is our only place where our ultimate hope can happen. By trusting that God is going to take all that we have and all that he promises and bring it all together. That if I put on this breastplate of faith, hope, and love. If I put on this helmet of faith, hope, and love, God will help me through this life. God will help me to be a better person, the person that he made me to be as salt and as light. The commentator, Bible commentator William Hendrickson, says this of these verses. 
He says, active faith and love is a piece of defensive armor. The best defense is a good offense. And the most positive protection is an attack. So God wants wants you and me to attack our problems. What problem do you have right now? Just think of anyone or anything that is your problem. And God would say, attack this problem with faith in the word of God, in the word of God. Faith by learning what God's word teaches you to do. Attack this problem with love by loving. And attack this problem with hope by trusting that God is going to work his work in us until the day of the Lord. Well, Christians should live with self-control as God's light. But Paul goes on in verses 9 and 10 and tells us, other things that Christians ought to believe and Christians ought to do in light of what God was happening with the day of the Lord. In verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may, we may live together with him. As Christians, we should focus on Christ's salvation, not on God's wrath. As Christians, we should focus on Christ's salvation and not on God's wrath. That's what Paul is telling the believers there in Thessalonians in verse 9. God didn't appoint you to suffer wrath, so don't dwell on that. But rather, God has appointed you to know and to have salvation. And in knowing this, we understand what God has delivered us from. Now, some of us... Struggle. Maybe all of us struggle. I know I do. With the idea of wrath. But as we've talked about it before, part of our struggle with wrath is because we interpret it the way we experience wrath. We tend to experience wrath as being out of control. But God's wrath is not out of control. God's wrath is in perfect control. God's wrath is a divine hostility to everything that is evil. God's wrath is a divine hostility to everything that is evil. Now, is that okay? I mean, it's true, but, but as you think about it, does that sound okay? I mean, don't you get mad at evil? Don't you get just really ticked off when something bad happens to someone that you love and an evil happens? And, and we've heard of that term, I think, you know, where we have a certain sense of, of righteousness towards anger. And that's God in perfection, that he has a righteous anger to everything that's evil. And he will bring everything under judgment someday. And, you know, all the evil that we see around us is God's patience waiting for us to come to him. He's longing that we might see that this evil is a reminder of our need for him so that we won't suffer his wrath. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I know none of us here want to face God's wrath. And God doesn't want us to face his wrath either. But God has a divine hostility against all that is evil. 
And in the meantime, while we see all this evil around us, it is evidence of God's patience. He doesn't want us to remain stubborn. He doesn't want us to have unchanging, unrepentant hearts. He doesn't want us to store up the wrath that we are doing by staying away from him upon ourselves, but rather he would want us to turn to him and know this great and mighty truth. We see the gospel right there in verse 9, and that is that Jesus Christ is our salvation. Jesus died that we may live. Jesus died that we may live. Sometimes it's in the darkest of days that the light is the brightest. You know, when you go through the most difficult of times, you're just longing for light. And if you've ever gone hiking, you've ever gone to the mountains when it's completely dark and there's no lights on the, from the earth there, and you look up into the sky and you see the amazing brightness of the moon or of the stars, the reason it's so beautiful is because there's no other light that's coming from the earth but rather only the light that's coming from the heavens. And if you're going through a dark time right now, if you're going through a difficult time right now, look up, don't look down. Look up, look away from the lights that you might think this world might offer you and look up into heaven and it'll be brighter than ever before because we need that contrast at times in our lives. We need that contrast that helps us to see how true and how bright the light is. And in the darkest of all darkness, and that is sin and wrath, God says, look, Jesus died so that you might have life. Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to suffer God's wrath. Jesus died so that you can know his life. He is coming, and he is coming soon. Now it is at this point that some of the most exciting interpretations of Scripture happen. This verse, verse 9, is used in so many different ways by different people, and each of them have studied the Word of God far more than I ever have or far more than I'll ever be able to. And they're a lot smarter than me. But there are many people who look at verse 9 and say, For God has not appointed us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, to mean that we are going to be raptured out of the great tribulation. And so we've been talking about this time of tribulation. We've been talking about it because Paul's been talking about it, and he's telling us that there is a time coming where God is going to bring the world to an end. And at the very end of the end of the world, there's going to be a time of amazing tribulation where the world's going to go through great suffering. And so the question is, can we know for certain, can we know for absolute certain when the rapture is going to happen? So are we going to have to go through the great tribulation as Christians? Or are we going to be raptured before it so we don't have to go through it? Now as we read these verses, as we've been looking at them from from verse 4. If you continue and you read even back to verse 1, you'll see that Paul is talking here of a time that he wants Christians to be ready for the suffering that's going to be happening, to be ready for the things that are coming. So we can interpret it in one of two ways. We can interpret it to say that these things are coming and that God's going to lift us out of that before so that we don't have to suffer the wrath that happens in the great tribulation. Or, and this is my own opinion, 
But the word wrath refers not just to a seven-year period, but to the eternal wrath of God. Because what God is promising us here in verse 9 is that we won't suffer eternal wrath, but rather we will be saved. And so what I see in these scriptures is summarized by another theologian and Bible scholar, Leon Morris. And he says that it seems to me that the probability is that it should be taken as meaning that believers will pass through the day spoken of, that being the day of the Lord. That people will pass through the things that are happening in the great tribulation. And that Paul speaks of them as being ready, not as being taken out of trouble in question. And so it is my belief that Christians are going through or are going to go through the Great Tribulation. Now, it is interpreted in different ways, too, about what the Great Tribulation is. Some see it as a literal seven-year period, and some see it as the period of when Jesus died and was rose, rose again until the time that Jesus returns. And so the Great Tribulation could be all that we're going through right now. But it certainly does mean, regardless of what it says about that time from the end of Jesus' life on earth to when he returns, that that might be the time of Great Tribulation. But certainly at the end of that time, there is going to be a cataclysmic number of events that is going to bring the world to its knees before God. And the world is going to be in great chaos. For myself... As I think about the Great Tribulation, and as I try to study it in First Thessalonians, I, I also have to compare it to Jesus' words. And as we said in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25, we read Jesus' words about the Great Tribulation. And, and I find Matthew 24 much more understandable, actually, than 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. Because in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, we're not sure if Paul's talking about sequences, about what happens in order. And we still have to be careful about it in Matthew 24, but it seems that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 as more of the sequence of things happening and the timing of them in sequence, though we cannot know the exact timing of them. And so if we look at Matthew chapter 24, and we look at verse 21, then we see Jesus' words talking about the great tribulation. And there he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those, will be day, those days will be cut short. And so Jesus is talking here in Matthew chapter 24, 24, verse 21 and 22, about the great tribulation and saying that those days are terrible days, but they will be cut short. And part of the reason why they will be cut short is for the sake of Christians, for the sake of the elect. And if you go back down further and you sort of follow the sequence of Jesus' words, then we go down to verse 29 of the same chapter, of chapter 24. And then Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. So the tribulation is happening, the tribulation has come. And then Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so we see that Jesus is coming. So we're here, it's talking about Jesus returning here. And then in verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. And some believers, 31 is referring to the rapture. And so if we see it in these terms and we see it in the sequence of which Jesus teaches, then we see that there's a great tribulation and the great tribulation is cut short for the sake of the elect or for the sake of Christians. And then Jesus returns and then he brings those who are with him, those who know him to be with him forever, which is what we studied last week at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of the rapture. And so God's word teaches us many different things about the coming of Jesus. And there are many different views about when Jesus is coming. But we have to be careful because there are people and scholars throughout time, even today, and also throughout history, who've had different views. And so even though I would agree with Leon Morris, I would also agree with Leon Morris when he says this, but I fully recognize that other interpretations are possible and suggest that it is not wise for any of us to condemn those who see such passages differently. And so we all have to decide what we believe. Is Jesus coming before the Great Tribulation? Is he coming in the middle of the Great Tribulation? Is he coming after the Great Tribulation? But the truth is, at least we know Jesus is coming. He is coming, and we all agree with that. And therefore, God would say to us in verse 11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And so what God is saying is, I want you to encourage, and the word encourage can mean exhort. I want you to encourage and to exhort each other to be a community that's close and that's helping. You know what we need more than anything else while we go through suffering in this world? We need each other. We need each other. When we're going through a hard time, it's not the time to leave the church. It's time to come to the church. And I'm not talking about Sunday. I'm talking about the believers in the community. We need each other. God wants us to be ready for Jesus' coming by growing closer to him and growing in our faith and putting on that breastplate of faith, hope, and love. That God wants us to be growing as a community, encouraging each other and knowing the scriptures and helping each other. And God wants us to be growing as a community, sharing the gospel so that other people will know that Jesus is coming and that they have hope. This is the sharing of the great commandment in love and of the great commission in witness. And so whatever you believe, it's important to share the gospel. So if you look at your outline, you'll see this. For it says, if we believe Jesus is coming before the great tribulation, we should be very zealous for sharing of the good news so that people will be saved and avoid it. 
If we believe that Jesus is coming before the Great Tribulation, I'm sure that many of you do believe that, that Jesus has come before the Great Tribulation, then that ought to give you even more reason to go out there and be sharing the good news with other people so they will avoid the Great Tribulation. And as it was as, as last week on the back of the bulletin, there's a very simple plan that you can share with anybody about how they can avoid the Great Tribulation, if that is your view, so that they can be with Jesus in heaven forever. And that's the point of the, of the witness, is so that people will be ready for Jesus' coming. But if we believe that Jesus is coming after the Great Tribulation, then we should be very zealous for sharing the good news so that people will be saved and be ready for it. And so whether we believe that Jesus is coming before or after the Great Tribulation, the way we live ought to be exactly the same. We ought to be sharing the gospel. We ought to be seeking to be people of light. We ought to be seeking to help people to know Jesus. So in one case, we're seeking to help them, if that's what we believe, to avoid the Great Tribulation. On the other, we're seeking to help them to be ready for it. Now, with my own particular view that we are going through the Great Tribulation now, or we shall go through the Great Tribulation, then it is my responsibility as a pastor to tell you to be ready for it. To not be surprised by the suffering that you're going through. To not be surprised by the problems that you're facing. To not be overwhelmed by the things that you're going through because Jesus is coming. And he's going to take you through them. And he's going to bring you to heaven to be with him forever. That Jesus is coming and we need to be ready for his coming. And he wants us to be ready so that we will be able to stand before him in judgment and know that he is our Savior and know that he is our God and know that there is no condemnation for those who know the Lord Jesus. I close with a quote from the commentator William Hendrickson. And it is this. If we believe Jesus is coming, which what we all should believe, then let us be prepared, spiritually alert, firm in the faith, courageous, strong, calmly, and with great anticipation, looking forward to that future day. God wants us to be prepared, to be spiritually alert, to be firm in our faith, to be courageous and to be strong, and to look with glad anticipation to being with the Lord forever. And they say, amen. <laughs> this is another church that, um, if you really like loud music, go visit them. Okay? They just started meeting down there a couple months ago. I met their pastor. And uh, nice guy. Loud music. <laughs> All right. Um, but there's going to be a great trumpet call someday. A loud trumpet call that's going to go throughout the whole earth and the world. And everyone's going to hear it. And it's going to be Jesus saying, I am here. Let us be ready. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for just a little joyful noise um, coming from our brothers and sisters at Exodus 3 Church. Lord, bless them and bless us too. Your word does say, Lord, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Your word says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, we should look forward to your coming, not with fear, but with joy. We should be looking forward to your coming with all hope and anticipation. 
Lord, I pray that all of us here will do that. I pray we all be ready. Thank you, Jesus, for coming the first time. We look forward to you coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand. Sing this song of response. Ushers, if you can go ahead and do your thing. Join me in singing this response song.